Well, hey, good morning. Uh, glad to see everybody this morning. Uh, if you got your Bibles ready, let's pull them out. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but before we get there, um, flip over to Acts chapter 17, if you don't mind. We're going to do a little background here. Uh, don't know why I need drumsticks. But we're going to jump right into this uh, this morning because there's a lot for us to cover. Um, if you listen to the podcast, wasn't it the podcast this was mentioned? Was it said during the podcast? There was, there was a comment made that it seems like during this First Corinthians series, I get the really long passages. Um, which was funny because later on, Matt was, he was kind of mentioned, he's like, you know, I got to thinking about that. And he's like, you do get the really long passages. But he's like, I didn't do it on purpose, which is funny because he really didn't. Uh, it's just kind of how it felt. Riley's wedding, I had to preach because he had that. Graduation's today, so of course I get this. So um, it was kind of funny, but we got a lot to go over today. And I want to start, uh, we're going to be in Acts just for a minute as we begin. But before that, you don't need to look this up, but First John says something very interesting that I think kind of helps set the stage for us as we continue this conversation on resurrection. Uh, the pastor Matt started processing through with us last week talking about Christ's resurrection. But First John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 says this, Dear friends, um, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he, being Christ, appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. As we begin this morning and we continue to this this thought process that Paul has started in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, and he's talking about resurrection. He's going to start, what we're going to look at today is he's going to start talking about our resurrection. He started by talking about Jesus' resurrection and laying the foundation that that Jesus is no longer in the tomb. And the, the foundation of our faith is that he has victory over the grave. He has victory over death. And he has risen and that he is living now, exalted in heaven, and one day will return. And Paul takes that foundational truth and he brings it into the core of what he's trying to share with the first Corinthians church. And he's saying, listen, or the Corinthian church. He's like, listen, because Jesus is risen, the foundational truth of the gospel is because of our new life in Christ. Those of us that though we die, we will live forever, not in some spiritual form, but there is a day coming where we will be resurrected into physical glorified bodies the same way Jesus is. This is what John's referring to. He's like, listen, Someday we will be like him, right? Someday we will be glorified physically just like him. And because of this, any of us that has this hope, any of us that believe this hope of our eventual resurrection purifies ourselves in preparation for it. Right? John is presenting this truth and he's saying, listen, because we will one day be resurrected, this should be motivating us to purify ourselves and to pursue holiness in this life. Because I know that my purpose is not this life. 
I have a glorified, resurrected existence that's prepared for me in Jesus Christ. And we live our lives here in preparation for there. With excitement, enthusiasm. So we just need to understand that. That Again, I, I think sometimes we have a, I don't want to say necessarily an incomplete gospel, but we don't really reflect on this a whole lot. We talk a lot about, well, I'm forgiven, and one day I'm going to go to heaven, and I'm going to be with Jesus. And, and, and we kind of have this... It was interesting, uh, you know, uh, not this last Wednesday, but the Wednesday before uh, we got and Pastor Matt and myself were able to come and, and, and talk to and answer questions for the middle school youth group um, that, that night. And uh, a lot of questions were centered on heaven. What's heaven going to be like? Am I going to do this? I'm going to do that. And, and it's funny because sometimes I think even us as Christians have a very odd understanding of heaven because we base it on this idea of this spiritual reality. Listen, I plan on being in heaven with God, but I'm not going to be in this floating thing in the clouds somewhere off. The Bible's very clear. When everything is complete, God is going to make the heavens and the earth brand new. And we are going to exist in physical form on the earth in the presence of God for all eternity. The beauty of the gospel is not that God is going to suck us up into heaven someday. The beauty of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, God is going to take heaven and earth and bring them together for all eternity. This is the beauty of the gospel. Not that he died to take us to himself. The gospel is that he's bringing together for the first time heaven and earth. You know, we look at the fall, and and, and don't get me wrong, I wish it wouldn't have happened, but we look at the existence of Adam and we say, man, how wonderful that would have been. But realize, while God did interact with Adam and Eve, there was not this beautiful uniting of heaven and earth in the original creation. This is not going to happen until all things are brought together and the Bible is clear that God's dwelling will now be with man. This is why the promises of resurrection are so important to our faith and we need to understand this. Now, with that, that's what Paul's going to go into, and we're going to look at that here soon, but I want us to give us some context of what's going on. So go to Acts, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 17, and we're going to look at a portion of Scripture uh, that kind of sets this up of what um, Paul is dealing with. So we all under, kind of understand this thought process. So if you're in Acts 17, we're not going to look at all of this part, but I want us to start at verse 16. Okay? Verse 16 While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in a synagogue and with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Ecuperian and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. 
You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. Okay, so here's this context. Paul's in Athens. He's preaching Christ, and he's preaching the resurrection of Jesus. And here's all these philosophers. you got to understand, here we are in, in, in the, the epicenter of Greek philosophy. And, and basically what was happening is people would just spend their days debating ideas and sharing ideas and all of these things. And here's Paul bringing this, and, and they're confused by it. And, and actually, in Scripture, it explains to us why. If you then go and skip to uh, verse 31, it says, For he has said, Paul's kind of explaining some stuff to him. He says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, being Christ. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So again, Paul is pressing the resurrection to these people and it's it, it doesn't make sense to them and let's just understand why paul or uh, in acts it actually mentions luke actually mentions two different philosophies some idea philosophies that were actually present in athens and if you look at what these two philosophies taught this is actually what they both said one of them taught that after death there was nothing Right, so that was the philosophy idea. Listen, when you die, there's nothing. In fact, they, they, the idea is your body, and Pastor Matt kind of hit on a little bit this last week, but your body should actually be seen as a tomb. This is a burden that you're in. The physical is a burden. Some of this philosophy uh, teaching actually taught things that said things like that. This is the actual hell of existence. Being in physical form, this is hell. I mean, look how hard life is and difficult and sickness and weakness and all the things. And, and because of that, our physical bodies, we should actually long to be free from these things, to be free from the body, to be free from this restraint. This was the actual ideas that were being taught in Athens at this time. One of the other, the Stoic uh, philosophy actually taught something a little bit different, but again, it didn't line up with the resurrection. What they taught was that uh, we all, all of creation, all of, all of us, all of our souls, all of our existence comes from this cosmic fire. Like there's this great cosmic fire. And all of us were, were from this, this big collection of all of reality, if you want to, however you want to look at it. And basically, when you died, your, the, the cosmic fire, the part of you that was, what was birthed from this cosmic fire, you would just turn to it. So when you die, your soul would just return from the place in which it came, and you would once again become part of it again. There was no individuality. There was no... Uh, like existence of you personally for eternity, you basically just return back from that which you came and you cease to exist because you were just part of the cosmic fire again. Basically what this would look like, if it kind of helps us a little bit, this idea would be if the cosmic fire for us was the ocean, at some point in time you were scooped out into a cup and you individually, this was you, this was your soul, this was your personality, this, you were taken from the, 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 the sea, but when you die, you basically just get poured back in and you are no longer anything individual. You are just back part of the whole. These were the philosophies that were being taught that Paul was speaking against when he's talking about the resurrection. But, you know, it wasn't just the resurrection of Christ that Paul was preaching on. He was preaching on the resurrection of the dead. 
Not just the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection of all those that believed and followed him. And then if you look at verse eight, or chapter, or chapter 18, verse 1, gives us why this is important. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. See, there's only about 50 miles between Athens and Corinth. And as what was taught and believed in Athens would be taught and believed in Corinth. So we're seeing in Acts the mindset of the people that Paul was proclaiming the gospel to. We're seeing people that were coming out of these philosophies. And what was happening is they were trying to mesh together their new Christian belief with the philosophies they'd been growing up under. And they were trying to mesh the two together. And what we see when we get to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is we see Paul, he's addressing not necessarily their disbelief in Jesus' resurrection, but for some reason there was this growing group that was actually stepping away from the belief and the teaching of our resurrection. See, it's like, yeah, we can get on board with Jesus being resurrected. We can understand that. We believe that gospel. We believe that you, you preach that, Paul. We accepted that. We, we can understand that, you know, but not us. And, and what Paul is addressing here is this growing group that was actually stepping away from our resurrection. And this is what he addresses as we go through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 12. It's him trying to get the people to understand how foundational it is that not only Jesus is resurrected, but we are resurrected. So let's go to 1 Corinthians. Let's uh, jump in. We're going to just kind of take a little little bit at a time and and kind of process through this, and and hopefully it'll make sense. Uh, And we'll walk away from this saying, yeah, that made total sense, um, instead of completely confused. So right off the bat, Paul says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Again, here's here's Paul laying the foundation. He's like, listen, I just got done addressing the proof that Jesus has risen from the dead. I just got done telling you how uh, he, he appeared to the apostles and he appeared to 500 at one time and he appeared to James and he appeared to me. And, and this is all this proof that Jesus has been resurrected. He's like, now let's get to the core of this. He says, listen, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, why do you, why do you try to say that the rest of you can't be? Why are we rejecting this truth that, that the, the culmination of the gospel is that one day we will be resurrected in glorified bodies and we will be just like him? See, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So what Paul, I want us to process for a moment is how serious this statement is. Paul is basically saying, listen, If we're going to try to say that we will not be resurrected, then we can't go around and say that we believe that Jesus has been resurrected. And if Jesus hasn't been resurrected, there's some major, major significant consequences that we can't sidestep. See, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then the Christian faith is a house of cards that falls apart. 
That's how much seriousness that Paul is putting on this. He's like, listen, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then our faith completely falls apart. It's a house of cards. This is how serious Paul is saying this is. So I, I, I want to track through this just for a second. Now, Paul, he refers to some of this, but track with me for a second some logical thinking just for a moment as we, as we process this. What does that mean if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead? So here we go. Let's just process. Seven things real quick. If there is no resurrection, then Jesus did not rise. That's the first thing Paul says. If there is no resurrection, then Jesus did not rise. Logically, then, that would say, if Jesus did not rise, then death has power over Jesus and has defeated him. Okay, so logical thinking. We're just going to process through this. So if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then that means death is more powerful than Jesus. And that means death has won. So if that is true, if death has defeated Jesus and has power over him, then Jesus is not God. See, this is how it's a house of cards. If if death is stronger than Jesus, and Jesus did not have victory over death, then he is not God. He is not who he said he was. Logically then, if Jesus is not God, he cannot offer a complete atonement for our sins. If Jesus cannot atone for our sins, then our sins are not paid for, and they're not forgiven by God. If my sins are not paid for, I'm still lost in my sin. Therefore, if there is no resurrection, I am unable to be saved. Christianity becomes a house of cards if we remove the resurrection. Everything that we, be, we believe would fall apart if there was no resurrection. And not just the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection of us. Paul is tying the two together. He's saying, listen, you can't separate the two. You can't proclaim the resurrection of Jesus and deny our own eventual resurrection. And he's going to process that more for us, but he's laying the foundation of the negative. He's saying, listen, you you have to understand this. Notice what he says, verse 14. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are now lost. I mean, Paul is really laying it hard here to say, listen, you cannot deny the resurrection of the dead. This is how serious this is. It's not just the seven things that we just got in talking about. He also points out some other stuff. He's like, listen, if the resurrection isn't real, then our preaching is useless. If the resurrection isn't real, your faith is useless. If the resurrection isn't real, then all of us apostles are false witnesses. He's like, we're lying to you if this isn't real. We're spreading falsehood if this is not real. And then he goes one step further and he says, listen, this is how serious this is. He's like, if there's no resurrection of the dead, 
then those who have fallen asleep, those that have already passed in the faith, those that have already put their trust in Jesus Christ and have died in their faith, they are ultimately lost. Meaning, they gave their lives for nothing if the resurrection isn't real. This is, I mean, Paul's really laying it on here like, listen to how serious this is. If there's no resurrection, there's no forgiveness. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope. If there's no resurrection, there's no purpose. And Christianity falls apart completely. In fact, it not only makes the, the, the apostles out to be liars, it makes Jesus out to be one also. Because I'm not going to say this is ultimately what Jesus was talking about, but, but it, it, there's a connection here. You know, we always talk about when Jesus gave the promise, like, you know, I'm, I'm going to be with the Father, and you can't come with me, and, and you know the way. And, and he tells the, the, the apostles, like, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know, whenever we hear that, you, you probably, like me, you probably think, like, oh, what's it going to be like? He's, you know, mansions and glory and, and a place in the Father's house. Listen, do you not realize that the place that he is preparing for you, yes, is this eternal eternal place, but part of that place he is preparing for you is your glorified, resurrected self. He's like, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And part of that is your resurrection. Because that's who I am doing this for, is so you can be like me, so you can be in eternity with me, not in some mansion that I'm preparing for you, but in a resurrected, glorified self, united with me and the Father for all eternity. This is part of our inheritance, is our resurrection. And he ends this portion by simply saying this, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. He's like, listen, if there's no, what are we, what are we striving for? What, what are we pushing for? What are we sacrificing for? What are we, what are we even here this morning for? If there's no resurrection, if there's no purpose to all of this, that's what Paul's saying. He's like, listen, if you take this away, your faith is completely useless. Because this is the thing that we should be striving for. Because this is the promise of Jesus Christ. He goes on, he's like, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. I I love Paul's certainty with this. I I love Paul's confidence in this. He's like, listen, I'm not going to go back and repeat it. I just proved to you that he was raised. He's like, listen, this is what happens if you take resurrection out. It's a house of cards. But he's like, listen, I haven't built my house on... uh, a foundation of sand. Paul's like, listen, I have built my life on the rock, and indeed, he has been raised from the dead. And Paul's like, you're not going to make me question my faith. You're not going to let me waver in this. I know without a shadow of a doubt. You know, Pastor Matt, one of the things he mentioned last week is that when you encounter the risen Jesus Christ, you do not doubt the reality of the resurrection. When you experience the risen and glorified Jesus, you know the truth of who he is and what he does. And Paul was a man that had experienced the resurrected Jesus. He says, listen, he indeed has been raised from the dead. And he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
There's significance to this statement. There's massive significance to this statement. See, Jesus was crucified there, there, uh, during Passover. Those that have studied or at least learned a little bit about Jewish festivals and traditions, God ordained these festivals, these celebrations that would take place during the Jewish year where they would remember different things and God would remind them of different things. And he was laying the foundation and the framework to help us understand Jesus. And Jesus was actually crucified during the Passover. Scripture calls him our Passover lamb, meaning the sins of the world, my sin, your sins, were placed upon Jesus and he was sacrificed for us on the cross. He is our substitute. He is our atonement. He was sacrificed in our place. He is our Passover lamb. But see, there's another festival that, you know, you got the big ones that we know, but there's another festival called the Festival of First Fruits. You can actually read about this in Leviticus chapter 23. If you want to look it up, it's in Leviticus 23. You can go back and you can read this. This was a festival that was laid out by God, and it was meant to take place. The time it would take place is you would have Passover. Passover would end on the Sabbath, Saturday. So Passover would conclude on the Sabbath, or on Saturday, at the end of the Sabbath, would be on Saturday. That would conclude. And then the festival of the first fruits would take place the next day following the Passover, Sunday. What would happen at the festival of the first fruits would every person would come and they would take uh, one stalk of their grain, they would bring one stalk of their grain. And what they were meant to do was they would bring it, the first grain of their crop, and they would bring it and they would wave it before the Lord, offering it as a sacrifice, this recognition of God's goodness and and what God had provided. What it ultimately was, was they were coming and they were waving the first fruits of of their crop to signify the promise that the harvest was to follow. They were basically saying, God, here's the first one. There's more to come. Here's the first reality of what you have done for us. There is a harvest to follow. Now, let's connect this all. So we're all on the same page. Jesus is crucified on Friday over Passover. Saturday is the conclusion of Passover. Sunday, the day following Passover, is the festival of first fruits. Sunday is resurrection day. Sunday is where Jesus burst forth from the tomb. Sunday is where Jesus comes forth and he waves himself before the Father saying, I'm the first one and there's a harvest to follow. Do you see the connection? Jesus is like, I'm the first fruits. I'm the first person. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is not the first person to ever be resurrected from the dead. Read this, the Bible. Jesus resurrected people. In the Old Testament, there's examples of people being resurrected from the dead. Jesus is not the first person to be resurrected from the dead. But here's the, kick, here's the thing. Jesus is the first one to be resurrected and then never die again. 
and Jesus being resurrected on the festival of first fruits is him proclaiming, I'm the first, there's more to come. I've opened the door and there's many that will follow. As I am resurrected in his glorified body, my followers will be too. This is an amazing picture of God's detail to every aspect of the gospel and his redemption story for us and his plan and what he will do for us. So there's significance to him being the first fruits. Paul then goes on and he says, um, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So I think Paul kind of takes this sidestep here just for a moment. Uh, It fits with what he's talking about. But I think there was probably people that even in the church were like, well, how can this be? You know, he's, he's preaching this, you know, we are going to be resurrected. He is the first fruits. And I think people probably were, you know, there, there's that wrestle, right? It's like, okay, I'm, I'm in conflict here. I want to believe this, but I've always been told this. And maybe this makes more sense. How can this be, you know, this does not make sense to me. And I think Paul has this moment where he says, listen, there's some relational consequences that we need to be aware of. And he's like, and we all get it. I think Paul was able, you know, he was able to speak to the church and he's like, listen, you, you all don't have a problem in believing that death came through Adam. You don't have a problem in believing that sin came through Adam. You don't have a problem with that. You can see that. It makes sense. You can look at the world. You can look at people. You can look at yourself and you can say to yourself, death definitely came through the disobedience of one man. Sin came through the disobedience of one man. Paul's basically saying, listen, if you can believe that, if we can believe that sin and death came through the acts of one man, surely we can believe that the resurrection of the dead and life comes through the acts of another man. See, Paul's hitting on something that he actually taught in Romans. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. He goes on and says, But the gift is not like the trespass. What Paul is saying, he's like, Listen, if we can believe that the trespass of Adam can have these consequences, we have to stand upon the firm foundation that the gift is greater than the trespass. Christ is superior to Adam. Grace is greater than sin. It says, For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? See, see, what it is, is if we struggle with the resurrection sometimes, and how will this work, and what will it look like, here's the beauty of it. I'm not God, so I don't know, but here's what I do know. Christ is greater than everything else. And if God says it's going to be so, we stand upon the promise it's going to be so. If death and sin can come through one man, why can't we stand upon the promise that life and resurrection comes through the superiority of the other? Because Jesus is greater. Paul's trying to challenge them. Choose which life 
path necessarily really that you want to live in? Do you want to live following this fallen nature and this fallen idea and this weakness and no purpose? He's like, or do you want to follow the path of Jesus Christ? This is why I say there's relational consequences. He's basically challenging us in our lives, in your life, in my life, daily, which one do I want to identify with? Do I want to identify with Adam or do I want to identify with Jesus? And Paul's challenging even us with that. It was interesting. I just had a conversation on, on Friday, uh, meeting with a couple of other guys, and we were talking about some stuff about, you know, trying to challenge ourselves in, in how we're growing in our faith and, and all of that. And some sin, like we started talking about anger, and we started talking about how the struggle with anger and, and how that shows itself up. And one of them, you know, in that moment, and I get where they were coming from, but it opened up a great conversation. In that moment, they, they just stopped, and they were just like, you know what? I get angry a lot about these things. And I just can't help it. And in that moment, we stopped. And I'm like, stop, time out. No, we're not going any farther. We have to stop right here. That's the problem. The problem is we automatically fall into the I can't help it camp. Right? Like we make our sin greater than the Savior. We make the, the line of Adam in our lives and the brokenness and the messiness, and we make that greater than the resurrected Jesus Christ. It's like, yeah, we can't help it. But Jesus is greater than all of those things. Choose which one we identify with. I do this on a regular basis. I fall into the trap of identifying with my sin more than I den- identify with my Savior. And that's what Paul is he's like challenging us to say, listen... You're questioning what God is able to do because you're, you, you can get on board with the power of a sin and the power of our brokenness and the power of the fallen world and, and what's happened. We, we, give cre- we give credit to the trespass. He's like, stop giving so much credit to the trespass. No, stand upon the promise of the gift. And the gift is Jesus Christ who is great enough to not one, be resurrected himself, but also to resurrect us. He goes on, he says, but each in turn, Christ, the first fruit, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Now, Paul doesn't go into a lot of detail here. Here's one of the things that's interesting about Scripture is I think Paul's referring to things that he was teaching to the church when he was there. So he, he knows that they understand what he's talking about. But for us reading it sometimes, it's like, well, what, what are you talking about, Paul? This is why sometimes you can look at stuff in Scripture and you have to have the rest of Scripture to kind of understand what's going on. Because Paul here, he's kind of taking this shift. He's like, listen, the, the, the resurrection of the dead is real. And now he's, he's making reference to how it's going to work, what it looks like. How is the re- resurrection going to happen? And, and he says, listen, but each in, tour, each in turn, Christ is the first, right? He's basically showing us how this all plays out. Christ is the first to be resurrected. He is the first fruits. He's like, then when he comes, those who belong to him will be resurrected, Right? Because we're sitting here waiting for our own resurrection. So I want to process through with us real fast how the resurrections hopefully... Here's the thing. Am I going to stand here and say 100% this is how I know it's going to happen? I'm not going to say that. But this is how I feel very confident based on Scripture what this is going to look like. Okay? Christ is first. 
Now we're waiting for him to return so that we can be resurrected. So first and foremost is the rapture of the church. This is, res- this is the first kind of cycle of resurrection. And we're going to base this on scripture. So that's why I'm saying I feel pretty confident with this. So remember, Paul says, each in turn, Christ is first. Then when he comes, well, the first coming of Jesus is the rapture. The Bible tells us, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Resurrection number one, if you want to number them, basically... Number one, we are waiting now as the church for Christ to return. When Christ returns and receives his church, the Bible tells us very clearly that those that are already dead, those that were believers and already dead, will come forth to be received by Christ. And then those of us that are left, if we're alive at that time, bodily, our bodies will be taken. We will be taken up to meet the Lord. And we will be resurrected in that moment. Now, does it say resurrected in there? But no, there's just kind of the significance of why would God bother to take us physically from this place if he wasn't then going to, if he just wanted our souls, he'd just snatch your soul out. And you just have a bunch of people just falling over dead. But he's purposely physically taking us out of this place so he can then take us to be with himself, to be physically resurrected in his presence. So, we have the rapture of the church. But there's other places where resurrection is talked about in Scripture with different groups of people. The second, then, would be the resurrection of tribulation saints. Right? So, after the rapture, we enter into the tribulation time, or however that's going to play out. This is where God's wrath and God's judgment is poured out upon the earth as we get closer and closer to that moment of end where God brings judgment upon sin and upon death, and he... And he brings us all to completion. And we have in Revelation chapter 20, after the tribulation, it says, uh, John is saying, and I saw throne. And they sat on them, and the judgment was committed to them. And I saw souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark, of the, a mark on their foreheads or on their hands. So this is scripturally talking about the mark of the beast. And when we look at end times, it talks about what that's going to look like. The Bible is very clear. There's going to be this governmental system, this economic system, where the only way that you can participate is you have to take the mark of the beast on us and some way that we can function in society and basically that's a turning our backs on God and, and conforming to this fallen world and this fallen government and this fallen you know leader that is pulling people and ultimately uh, guided and directed by Satan himself and the Bible's saying that John's saying I saw these souls and these people that had died for their faith those that had not taken the mark those that did not follow the beast so he's talking about the tribulation time he says, and they lived and, and, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So again, Paul is saying they're souls that are dead. They have lost their lives in the tribulation. They have paid the ultimate price, but 
in Christ at the end of the tribulation, they will come when Christ comes again and steps foot once again upon the earth. When Jesus comes to set up his reign upon the earth and he comes that second time to, to put an end to the reign of the Antichrist at that moment and to begin his millennial kingdom, that thousand years that he will reign and he sit, steps foot, the Bible says that the tribulation saints will come to life and they will reign with him. But the rest of the dead, this is, where I, this is how we know again, dead, living. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now again, don't get hung up on the word first there like this is the first time any resurrection happens. Again, Jesus is the first. What Paul is talking about is, uh, or, or John here is talking about the first res- res- resurrection. There's different types of resurrection and we're going to look at the last one, the one we don't want to be part of. Here's the last one. Basically everybody else. Now, here's the thing. Just a, a, a side note. Somewhere in time in there, the Old Testament saints will be resurrected. I am not going to try. There's different theories on that. All I'm going to stand upon is this. God's going to raise them too. I don't know when exactly. There's different scripture that kind of point towards that. But sometime during all of this, God doesn't forget those that were faithful to him. They get that resurrection also. I'm just going to throw that out there. But here's what happens. Everybody else. Then I saw the great white throne and the one who sat on it. The earth and the heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Also another book was opened and the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works as recorded in the books. See, if you actually look at Scripture, it's kind of interesting because the way that it presents itself is there's going to be a resurrection, not just of those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus, but the Bible also talks about a resurrection for the unrighteous. There's a resurrection for the ungodly. There's a resurrection for those that have rejected Christ and did not put their faith in him. There is a resurrection. The Bible is very clear in Daniel it talks about this. It talks about there's a resurrection of the godly and a resurrection of the ungodly. Both will be brought to life and stand before God. The difference is the ungodly will be cast outside the presence of God. The godly will be ushered into the kingdom. This is the resurrection that we don't want to be part of. See, this is the resurrection where the ungodly are judged. This is the resurrection where the people that never put their faith in Jesus are cast out from his presence. This is why it's so important that we put our faith in Jesus now. This is what Paul is stressing on. He's like, listen, it's going to happen in order. Jesus is first, but when Jesus comes, there's going to be resurrections. This is the one that should actually motivate us in some ways. One, our resurrection should motivate us to seek purity and to seek Christ and to conform our lives to him. This resurrection should motivate us to try to tell as many people as possible about the faithful love of Jesus Christ and the life that is theirs if they just submit to his loving gospel. Because all of us here could probably think of loved ones and family and people that we desperately know and care about that we don't want them to be resurrected at that moment and stand before a God of judgment. This is why the resurrection is so, it should be so important to us. 
because we should long to be ushered into the presence of God and we should also be motivated to try to get as many people as possible to not experience that. In Revelation, it goes on. It says, I, get, I saw the sea. John's kind of giving this image. He says, and I saw the sea give up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead and that were in them. And all of them were judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. You know, I always struggled with what hell would be like when you think about it. Because I always, you know, when I was younger, I thought about, you know, uh, eternity is like this spiritual being. So how can you talk about pain? And how can you talk about feeling things? And how can you talk about this stuff in, in a spiritual reality? But when you start looking at Scripture clearly, it talks about we will be resurrected physically. It makes a little bit more sense when you start talking about hell being this place of torment and this place of pain and this place if there's a physical reality of eternity for everyone. And it makes it a whole lot more serious when we really stop and think about this. Paul then, for our benefit, goes on. He says, For he must reign, talking about Christ, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's what we just looked at in Revelation. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that, his, that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, being the Father, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, here's the thing. Um, I'm going to use a, a, a statement that Matt says to me a lot sometimes when we get in discussions, theological ones, and, and I ask questions. And, and basically, here's the thing. Um, there's aspects to that passage, that portion of this passage, that's above my pay grade. Right? Some of that's above my pay grade. Meaning this idea of Christ making himself subject to the Father and what that's going to look like and, and how that's going to play out and what all that means. But, but basically, the, here's the thing I want us to share, and this is where I landed as I just prayed over this and thought about this and, and just really focused on that section right, that, right there and simply this. It's the reminder to me that the gospel and the kingdom of God is ultimately not about me, but it's ultimately about the glory of God. Amen. Right? We talk about the resurrection, which is great. We talk about the blessings that are going to be ours. We talk about what God's going to give to us, and that excites me, and that rejoice. There's this rejoicing in me, this idea of the place that he's gone to prepare for me, this, this idea of the love and, and all the experiences of eternity and when that glorified body and all of those things, and that excites me. But Paul makes it clear right here. He says, listen, those are all great, and those are all important, and we need to be motivated and excited about that. But what, you re what we all need to understand and never lose sight of, the kingdom is not about us. The kingdom is about God. It's about Jesus. It's about his glory. It's about him having the kingdom that he deserves, about him having the, the followers he deserves. It's about us loving him and worshiping him. It's about us experiencing him and the fullness of who he is. It's about the bond and the unity between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Godhead for all of eternity. 
But there's encouragement here also because Christians, we should be encouraged by this one thing based on this one small passage right here and simply this. When we look at the world around us and the sin and the destruction and the concerns and the pain and all of those things, there is coming a day when all of that is going to be put under the feet of Jesus Christ. And he is going to remove it for all eternity. And he is going to reign forevermore. See, this is something that should keep us a little calm in our lives. This is something that should keep us a little uh, joyful in our lives. When we see things happening around us that we don't like or they they concern us or they make fearful of us, we see the world and we, we feel like the world is falling apart. Christian, Paul's reminding us, take your eyes off of the world and put your eyes on Jesus. The author and the perfecter of our faith. This is the reminder that he is the perfecter of our faith. This is, the, this, is the final, this is the final thing. This is the final moment of the gospel when Jesus will have the kingdom and he will have all authority and all rule and it will all come to an end when he hands that back over to the Father. The Father in love gave it to Jesus and in love Jesus is going to give it back to the Father. Why and what that looks like, I don't know. I just know that I want to be there to see it happen. Right? I want to be there to see this. This is after all the resurrections are done. This is after people have been thrown in the lake of fire. This is the very conclusion of all of it. This is the end when we usher into eternity forever. Jesus handing this over to the Father. Now, let's quickly through the last little bit. Now, if there's no resurrection, What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptizing for them? Again, there's probably more we can say about this or I can go into, but I'm already over time. So I just want to kind of quickly just understand this. Paul is not telling us that we should be baptizing people that are dead. What was happening here were people were actually for loved ones. If I had a loved one that died and they were never baptized or they never put their faith in in Jesus or they didn't do what was necessary, I would step in as a substitute. I would be the proxy. I would say, baptize me for them. That's what was happening. Baptize me for their behalf. In fact, the Mormon church actually practices this. I'm going to stand in their place for their salvation, for their benefit. I'm attempting to rescue them for wherever they are at. This is not a Christian belief. This is actually a pagan thing that was happening. Paul is not encouraging it. What Paul is saying is, listen, if there's no life after, or if there's no life after death, why are people wasting their time doing this? He's basically saying every human being, whether they want to admit it or not, we know that we were meant for eternity. Whether you want to admit it or not, every single person in their heart of hearts knows that this is not the end. They know there's an eternity. They're longing for something that is next. And Paul's like, listen, why are you trying to say there's no life after death? Why are people doing this then? Why are are people living this out if they don't know this and they don't believe this? He goes on, he says, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, just as surely as I, as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's like, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. He didn't really fight wild beasts. At least the Bible doesn't talk about him fighting wild But he's saying, that's what it's like. I am struggling. I am fighting on a daily basis for Jesus. He's like, why would I do that if there wasn't a resurrection? 
He's like, listen, if, if the dead are not raised, let's just eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. What he's saying is what we hear in our world today. Don't we hear this in our world, even in the church? Live your best life now. Or how about you only live once? That, that's what Paul's saying. He's like, listen, get rid of this mentality that you need to live your fullest life now. He's like, Paul's like, no, live for the life that matters, and that's the life to come. Don't feel like you're being cheated in this life. Because remember, I'm going to live in a glorified earth someday. I'm going to experience all the things I never got to experience here. Paul's like, listen, I face death on a daily basis because I'm not living for this life. I'm living for that life. So church, I encourage us and challenge to ask yourself the question, which life are you giving the most attention to? This life or the next life? This futile Vapor of wind is what the body, your life is like a vapor. But we put so much emphasis on this. When Paul's saying what matters is what's next, he ends it by simply, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought. Stop sinning, for there are some of you who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Paul is telling us, listen, what life are you living for? Because the resurrection is so glorious and so important, that should be our desire more than anything else. I say this to your shame. Feels rough, but Paul doesn't want you to miss out. He doesn't want me to miss out. He doesn't want them to miss out. He's like, don't miss out on this. Because it's that important. Let's pray. Gracious God, we just love, love you and thank you for this day. I praise you for the ability we have to come and worship you and to be together and to fellowship. Lord, I celebrate uh, the goodness that you pour out to us. And I don't want us to miss the, the goodness of the resurrection, Lord, that you have gone to prepare a place and that place is a resurrected, glorified self that is ushered into a kingdom for all eternity, Lord, where I get to experience the fullness of not only you, but the fullness of what life is ultimately about. But I pray for myself, because I lose sight of this, but anybody else that sometimes feel like there's a fullness of life here, Lord, this is just empty compared to what is prepared for us. This is so small and insignificant compared to what's prepared for us. Lord, yes, we want to live the best we can in the sense of glorifying you and seeking you and being used by you and, and enjoying the life that you give us here. But let us never lose sight that this is just preparation for the life to come. Let us not forget that there's something better waiting for us. And better, not in this, the smallest of senses, Lord. The Bible is clear. Paul says, compared to eternity, anything in this life means nothing compared to that. One second in the presence of the eternal God will make anything in this life just seem insignificant. Lord, fill us with that hope and that excitement of the resurrection. We give you love and we, and we just praise you today. Just watch over your church. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Please go in peace.